Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's Shapiro Lecture Series. This evening we are honored to have author Michael Bart, who will talk about his new book, Until Our Last Breath. Michael Bart's parents were Holocaust survivors who escaped the Vilna Ghetto and became members of the Partisans of Vilna with Abba Kovner's Avengers Group. His father was a mainline partisan fighter whose primary mission was the sabotage and destruction of Nazi trains. Michael's father always told him, doing the right thing isn't always easy, but it's always right. Michael's homage to his parents, their tremendous courage and love, and the cause for which they risked their lives is the right thing. The book title comes from part of a speech given in the Vilna Ghetto by resistance leader Abba Kovner, where he said, we shall not go like sheep to slaughter. We shall fight until our last breath. His book has been nominated for a Sophie Brody Medal, an award from the American Library Association, for the most distinguished contribution to Jewish literature for adults published in the United States. Before we begin, I would also like to thank the Baltimore Jewish Council for co-sponsoring this evening's pre-lecture reception. Michael? First off, I'd like to thank Judy Cooper and Teresa Edmonds and the Enoch Pratt Library for inviting me to come out here. They've been fabulous to work with. Basically, I'm going to start my talk, and I'm going to be giving a PowerPoint presentation, so I'm probably going to dim the lights some when maybe somebody's back there. Growing up, my parents didn't talk a lot about their Holocaust experiences, and I'm not sure, even to this day, whether it was very difficult for them or they didn't want to emotionally burden my brother and I with their, with their agony of the past. There were two exceptions. My mother always talked about being born and raised in Vilna, which is today Vilnius, Lithuania. She was very proud of the rich culture and heritage. And my father always spoke about being a member of the Partisans of Vilna, along with Ava Kovner, who my parents affectionately called their commander. And because he was really proud of that. In 1994, my father was in failing health and my mother was starting to have some health problems, so I was over at their house every day of the week for a two-year period, and they started sharing more details of their experiences with me, but a lot of it didn't make, I didn't know the history, uh, a lot of it, they would tell me a story here and there, but I didn't have the whole context. In 1996, my father's funeral, there was many, many people there, many Holocaust survivors, and a man went up to me without introducing himself, and he said, Michael, you need to inscribe Freedom Fighters of Nakama on your parents' gravestone. And I had no idea what he was talking about, so I asked him, would you repeat that? And he goes, Freedom Fighters of Nakama. Then I heard somebody call my name, and I turned. And by the time I turned back, he had disappeared into a crowd of mourners. Well, um, what was interesting is I... I really didn't, I had a hunch it had something to do with the partisans, but I wasn't absolutely sure. And when a short time later, I'm going through some of my dad's papers, and I found out the word nakama is revenge or avenge in Hebrew, 
and it was the name of my father's partisan group during World War II, together with Ava Kovner. Um, see how... Um, what I also did is I found an old phone book that was my mom's phone book that showed um, phone numbers that were 50 years old. And I started going through some of the numbers in the book. The first number I called was a gentleman named Max Ettingen. And I called and I, uh, I called, excuse me, I called the, the name in the phone book said Albert and Sonia Ettingen. And I called and asked for them, and then they were kind of speechless on the other line. They said, well, they've been dead for 30 years. Who is this? I told them who I was. And they said, she said, well, you probably should call my husband tonight at home because he knows your parents very well. And I called, and it turned out that he was forced into living in the same room in the Vilna ghetto with his family and my mom and her family. There were 25 people living in the same room. The second person I called in the phone book was a cousin that my mom had in Israel. And it turned out the cousin is the one who introduced them in the Vilna ghetto, where they ended up getting married 90 days before the ghetto was liquidated. And then she became a lifeline. So my first lifeline was somebody who met uh, my parents because, or my mother because they lived in the same room with 25. Imagine a bedroom at your house and imagine how 25 people can live in a bedroom. That's what they did. Fanya was the one who introduced them in the ghetto, and then that's where they ended up getting married. So she was my lifeline. Then uh, my wife and I were working with an archivist at Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles. And the archivist had boxes of stuff on Vilna, but didn't know if anything would help me. So we were going through box after box, photo after photo, finding nothing that would work for me. And there was one box left, and I told my wife, I'm hungry, I want to go home. This is not working out, and she's more patient than I am. And she said, let's just look through the last box. So looking through, finding nothing, I get to the bottom of the box, and I see a, a, a photo with a bunch of partisans. And then I immediately recognize the resistance leader, Ava Kovner, in the middle because he has a very distinct look. I look to his right, holding rifles. I see my mother and father. My father's right there, and my mother's right there. And I remember when I looked at that, now imagine you kind of grow up in a, in a normal household, and yeah, you heard your parents were survivors and they were in the resistance, but you, when you see a picture like this of 21, this was taken the day after the liberation of the Vilna Ghetto, that, then I realized there was really something I needed to continue going on with. Well, a short time later, I was going to go visit a cousin in Springfield, Massachusetts, who, whose father was 98, and he was in failing health, and I wanted to see him before he passed away. He was very close with my parents, and she, we had a booked a trip for August, and his daughter called me up and says, if you don't get here sooner, I don't think he's going to be here. So my wife, Bonnie, and I changed our trip to June, and we went out there, and, his, and she, he had heard I was going to be coming, and he's in a, a nursing facility, and he was very excited. And what happened was I hadn't seen him in 35 years. I had never told anybody other than my wife I was remotely considering a book. So here I walk into his room. He's 98 years old. And the first thing he said to me is, are you going to write a book about your parents' Holocaust and partisan experience? 
Hadn't seen him in 35 years, hadn't told anybody that was even remotely possible. In Yiddish, there's a word called beshirt. I had so many beshirts that lit my way that it, it's actually amazing. Well, I ended up spending four hours speaking with him because it turned out that my father shared most of his Holocaust experiences with him when he first came to the U.S. because he really had great admiration and affection and respect for him. And so he was sharing stuff with me that I didn't know. My wife and I decided we need to go to Vilnius, Lithuania, Vilna, and kind of see, um, kind of get an idea on, uh, to see what, if there's anybody back there still from that area. So we had a, a guide who was going to be working. When I told the guide, let me know if there's anybody who's a survivor of the Vilna ghetto or even better yet, a partisan there. And she said there's very few, but she'll look around. What we do is she sends me an email. She says, when you come to the airport, I'll pick you up, and I have a surprise for you. And she picked us up, and she had a surprise. She had the lady about this big. And what was interesting is it turned out her name was Fanya Yokolis Bronkowski. She grew up a few houses away from my mom. She was uh, a cousin by marriage. And more importantly, she was a partisan together with my parents who slept in the same underground dugout bunker with 25 other people for about a year out in the woods. And um, these Bashirts kept coming and coming. Well, my wife and I decided we need to go back for another week to Vilnius because we felt there was still more we could research because we were definitely getting serious and working on a book. And I told the same thing to my, my guide. If there's anybody other than Fanya who we, we were going to see again is going to be there, let me know. She sends me an email. I'm going to have another surprise for you. Well, she had, there was only two surprises for me. One she didn't even know about. There's a gentleman in Israel who's probably one of the most respected former partisans. Uh, his name is Yosef Har- Joseph Harmitz, Yudel Harmitz. He was a member of the Partisans of Vilna. He's very well respected in Israel. He's the former director general of World Ort, the educational organization. And he'd been helping me for a long time, constantly on the phone. And because he speaks good English, where not everybody did, and my Yiddish is a little rusty without my parents here, and other people, my Hebrew is worse, and, and, and some of their Englishes aren't perfect, and so a lot of times I needed interpreters. But with Joseph, he was clear as a bell. I didn't want to tell him I was going back to Vilna for a second trip because he had just had open-heart surgery, and I didn't, I didn't know if that's too much stress for him and how he would deal with it. So what I did is we, you know, we go to Vilna, and we're going to see our guide the next day to see her surprise, and we're walking around in the old ghetto. And I, I hear a voice that sounded familiar to me, and my wife, Bonnie, is always filming something, and she was filming, and I yell, Bonnie, come here, and she's waving me off. And then I'm hearing somebody talking whose voice sounded very familiar to me. I go, Bonnie, come here. She's waving me off, and then I'm hearing this person, and he's guiding a group of 10, and then I kind of scream, Bonnie, come here. And so she realized this is a little more important. She comes over. I walk up to this gentleman, and I said, Joseph? And he says, he has a raspy voice, yes. And I go, do I look familiar to you? And he goes, no. And I go, we talk on the phone all the time in Israel. And then all 10 people who were with his group immediately turned to see who is this guy. And then I said, um, I'm Michael Bart. 
he he was so mo- uh, overcome with emotion, be- and we both were, because I didn't want to tell him I was going to Vilna because I didn't want to upset him. But imagine somebody who'd been helping me on my book, I've been working with for over a year, who had gone on many train sabotage missions with my father, knew him very well. But the first thing he said to me is, he looks, he tells his family, I think in Hebrew, that he, he looks like his dad, but he's taller. Keep that in mind. That, that, that's a recurring theme. And uh, it was very emotional. So what he did is he grabbed my arm and he pulled me in front of the old Judenrat in the Vilna ghetto and he wanted his family to have photos of me and together with him. And that, that was one of the, mo- the most emotional things. I mean, you talk about Bashir. Finally, on the same trip, uh, the person who I, uh, the first time, Fanya Yokolas-Bronkowski, um, she had another partisan who was visiting from Israel who knew my father very well because they used to go on paired together on train sabotage missions. And he, um, he's basically, he gets off a van and he looks at me and the first thing, he didn't say it in Hebrew, he says it in Yiddish, he looks exactly like his father except he's taller. Those miracles led me to, you know, this book. And uh, basically now, let me tell you a little bit about the story in the book. That's, that's some of the highlights in my research. I could have spent the whole time I'm going to be with you telling about my research. But, you know, when things happen, whether they're meant to be, whether it's Bashir, whether it's just fate, whatever it is, you think that there's, there's a reason you're doing what you're doing. My father was, was born and raised in a small town in Poland, um, a town of 30,000 people, one-third Jewish, very poor um, the middle class were the wealthy, and there were very few of them. You were either poor or poorer. And you know, there was very little education after the eighth grade. Um, you had, you know, the best you can do is feed your family, and then you were doing your job. And my father, um, the, the Zionist movement that grew out of, out of Poland was basically out of desperation because they had nowhere to go. The Poles... You know, in 1935, the anti-Semitism in Poland got off the map because they had a new party that took over called the Endic Party who basically mimicked Hitler. They thought Hitler had all the right ideas. And their slogan was, Poland is for Poles, Jews out. There's, that's fine, except you have 3.3 million Jews with nowhere to go. Nobody wanted the Jews, and so they had not, nowhere to go. So it was very difficult to make a living, to go to school. And so my father got involved... Um, with a program where they were learning agricultural uh, uh, training so with other members of his youth Zionist group. So maybe they were hoping to immigrate to Palestine. That's the only hope they had. They, there was nothing else they could do. Now, um, that's there, my father. I don't know where that, how that hair got so high, but this is him, I think, when he is about 22 years old. He ended up becoming an instructor at the agricultural training they used to call it, it's a hawk shiraz, it's an agricultural training kibbutz. That's my father as a young kid when he first joined the organization at when he was 15 years old. Now, what happened is the Germans and the Russians signed a non-aggression pact. And it was very depressing for all the Jews of Europe because they realized it, you're either going to be under Stalin, which wasn't wonderful, or Hitler, which is worse. And so nobody knew what the future would hold, but it it was very depressing. My father said he didn't know what was going to happen, but it didn't feel good. His family, ironically, this river here is called the River Book. 
And this was the, embar- the, the split between the Russians and the Germans of who was going to take Poland. The Germans were on this side. The Russians were on that side. My father happened to live, his family, right on the border. That's where his hometown was, Rubieshov. The Germans invaded Poland in 1939, September 1st. The Russians invaded, this is the west part, the Russians occupied the east part on about 10 days later. My father and a lot of his members of his organization, a Zionist organization, they basically hopped over this river. They got to the Russian control part, and then they headed for Vilnius, Lithuania. This is a photo of Vilnius, Lithuania that was taken long before the war. Right there is the hotel we stayed at in our two trips. It's the uh, uh, the Astoria Hotel, it's probably the most significant hotel in Vilnius. The old ghetto is right through here. And so we were staying here on, when we were going on our research trips. We were just going around the corner, going to the old ghetto. Um, this, my mother grew up in Vilna, completely different background than my dad. She had an education. She just graduated high school. Family had money. They owned property. It was much more, she went to private schools, the opposite of my dad. That's my mom right there, taken shortly before the war. That's my mom's mom, my grandmother. That's my mom's brother, Michael, my namesake. That's my mother's father, and then that's her stepfather. Her father died when she was fairly young. This is the only remaining synagogue today in Vilnius, Lithuania. It's called the Choral Synagogue. Out of the 106 synagogues prior to the war, this is the only one that's left. This is the property, the building that my mom was uh, living in, her family owned. They had a grain business down here. Um, It's a little frustrating to go to a country and see property that your family owned and that was taken away from them, and you have to bribe somebody to let you into the building to look. The Germans invaded. They broke the non-aggression pact. They invaded Russia on June 22, 41. They came to Vilna two days later. They occupied Vilna within two days. Um, the first thing the Germans did is they wanted to start making life difficult for the Jews. There were 70,000 Jews in Vilna. The Germans had a plan. They wanted to have fewer Jews. So what they did is they got the Lithuanian paramilitary people to collaborate with them to round up Jews. And the the Lithuanians did it for a lot of reasons. One, they were fundamentally very anti-Semitic. Two, they wanted to make points with the Germans because they thought they'd be the winning side and that they would be better for them than living under the Soviet Union, which they weren't happy with. And initially, the Lithuanians were rounding up Jews. They rounded up 35,000. They took them four miles outside of Vilna to an area called Ponari, where they had big oil pits dug by the Russians, and the Lithuanians shot them and dumped them in pits, 35,000. I mean, I don't want to get into the politics, but the Lithuanians killed many more Jews in Vilna than the Germans did. So then the Germans decided that what they were going to do is they were going to open up a ghetto. They wanted to put the remaining roughly 35,000 Jews in a ghetto. This is one of the pits at Ponari that 
30, they had like four or five of them, I believe, and they were just shooting them on the edge, dumping them into the pit, putting dirt on top of them, 35,000. What happened is the Lithuanian government for a long time was saying, well, we don't really know this happened. There was just a lot of controversy. They wanted to move ahead. And a diary was found recently by a non-Jew who lived in the area, and he was watching what was going on. And he, he literally kept a diary every day that was recently published by Yale University Press. So there's living proof what happened. The Germans decided to open up two ghettos, a big one and a little one. The little one was going to be temporary. And, you know, growing up, when I heard they lived in a ghetto, to me it just felt like a Jewish neighborhood, you know. Well, I mean, what, what is a ghetto? Well, a lot different. The first thing is they took an area where prior to the war, possibly four or 5,000 people lived in at the most. And even then that was pretty crowded. And they moved 35,000 in. What that meant is the average room had 20 people to a room. You were sleeping literally person to person on the floor or anywhere you could sleep. You put mattresses, box springs, anything, you spread it out. And it, life was tough. The second thing is food. Uh, the average Jew got a bowl of soup and a piece of bread, about 400 calories. It was enough where you wouldn't die, but it was enough where you felt miserable. The next thing is work. They made them all work. They worked six days a week. They worked long hours. They worked hard. Um, you, it was slave labor. But mostly, the biggest problem was survival, because the Germans didn't really want 35,000 Jews. They probably wanted 15,000. And they were trying to get down to 15,000 by taking the most productive Jews who could work, and they were going to kill the rest of them. And so what they did is they were having, they called roundups, actions, where they were basically going in and rounding up the Jews and taking them out to the Ponari, shooting them, putting putting them into the pits. So Life in the ghetto was a struggle because it was so crowded that you couldn't breathe. You had very little to eat. You had to work because if you didn't get what they call the shine, a work permit, then you wouldn't be entitled to any food and you'd be more vulnerable for a roundup because they were constantly looking for people who didn't have a shine. Um, The next thing is a ghetto resistance started almost immediately. Ava Kovner gave that famous line at a speech in the soup kitchen on the first of, it was New Year's Eve, uh, 1941, where he said again, Hitler intends to kill all the Jews in Europe. We shall not go like sheep to slaughter. We shall fight until our last breath. Ava Kovner being right there. Well, two resistance groups uh, formed into the ghetto. The the most well-known one is the FPO, led by uh, Yitzhak Wittenberg, Joseph Glassman, and Ava Kovner. Their whole thing is most of their family lived in Vilna, and they wanted to do a Warsaw Ghetto Uprising thing, just fight to death. We're gonna, most of these people thought they were going to die, and they wouldn't last the war anyway. This other gentleman over here, his name was Yehil Scheinbaum. He had another organization. Their ideology was a little different. What they wanted to do is they wanted to get to the forest and fight. A lot of everybody asks, why couldn't the Jews escape the ghetto? Escaping the ghetto was easy. There was two problems. One, everybody in the area was very hostile to the Jews. They were either anti-Semitic or more anti-Semitic, and they would turn you in for any reward they could get. So if they saw a Jew, they knew they would turn you in and you'd be in trouble. And the second and the most significant is the Germans had a policy of collective retribution. 
What that meant is if they catch you outside the ghetto trying to escape, they go in there, they kill your entire family, they kill all anybody who knows, knows you or anybody who lives with you, they're all dead. And who can live with that? And so nobody could escape the Vilna ghetto. The two groups fundamentally merged, so there was ultimately one ghetto group. Now, my mother and father, my father met my mother at a, at a meeting in the Vilna ghetto. And my father then met my mother's mother and her grandmother. And he said that was one of the most, he said that was tougher than fighting the Nazis. And the reason is my father didn't have any money. He didn't have any family. He had no education. His Yiddish was a different dialect. It was more Polish. My mother was more Litvak. And, you know, it's like having a real richness about your Yiddish and everything about him, they didn't think he looked Jewish, they, they wanted proof, and here my mom is developing a friendship and ultimately a courtship with my dad. Well, they, my dad told my mom that ultimately they were going to go out to the woods and fight, and my mom, you know, their courtship had uh, uh, advanced, and my mom, they decided that they wanted to get married, and she wanted to go with them. So the last remaining rabbi on 90 days before the liquidation of the ghetto, on the Jewish holiday of Lagba Omer, without, I don't, I, I could, it would take a few minutes to explain the significance, but if you understand Lagba Omer, in traditional Judaism, in between two holidays, you're not supposed to have marriages, with the exception of one day, Lagba Omer. So they, were thinking, they thought enough about their religion that they waited to that one day. They ended up getting married on Lagba Omer, Then, on September 15th, eight days before the Germans liquidated the ghetto, my father and 14 members of their ghetto underground, led by Shlomo Brand, Leon Bernstein, escaped out a side gate. Again, to jump over barbed wire and get off a side gate in the middle of the night when half the time the Lithuanians that were guarding you were sleeping or drunk was easy. You got to get out. What they did is they, the Lithuanians were more economically driven, and they bribed a Lithuanian to get him a truck to drive him to the outskirts of Vilna so they could get to the woods. This is the Rudniki Forest. And when you say they fought in a forest, well, this is a forest that, uh, that's an area that's massive. It covered an area of 1,500 miles. It's very unforgiven. It's full of swamps. It's, you could easily go in the wrong direction, get disoriented, and never be heard from again. They got to the Rudniki Forest. Now, when they got to the forest, they needed four things. The first is shelter. The Baltic winters can be 20, 30 degrees below zero. You need shelter or you're going to die. They were out there for a year. So what they did is they built these underground bunkers where about 25 people were in, in these bunkers, and they lined them with young trees, and that would provide them enough shelter to make it through the winter. The next thing is where do they get food? The Russian partisans that were already out there weren't going to give them any food. There were three sources of food. One, they didn't eat, which many times they didn't eat for days. Two, they had a horrible concoction when they were literally hungry, is they got swamp water because the Rudniki is full of swamps. They boiled it, and they mixed it with flour. It's called balanda. And the third thing is they, whatever food they could steal or rob from the villages and farmers so they could eat. 
it, it was something they didn't have a choice. They had to live, and they had. To, now the next thing is arms. Where you know, the 108 members of the Avengers, which is their group, ultimately were 300 members of the Partisans of Vilna, aren't going to stop the Nazi um, onslaught. They came out with 40 weapons. With 150 members of the underground got to the woods with 40 weapons. Most of them were guns. They weren't rifles. So how are they going to fight the Germans? Well, what they did is they started a campaign of stealing, robbing, getting guns any way they can, trading the Russians for watches, for anything they could give them. The Russians would give them all the guns they want if you gave them something. So they started bartering. The first thing the partisans of Vilna did is they started cutting all of the communication lines from Vilna to around the Rudnicki Forest. And, you know, life in the forest was difficult because everybody out there was anti-Semitic. The Russians were anti-Semitic. The Poles were anti-Semitic. The Lithuanians were anti-Semitic. Everybody was anti-Semitic. It was just flat-out difficult. And so the first thing they did is they cut all the communications. They cut 350 poles or communication poles. Then they started basically derailing trains, and then ultimately, they, they blew up a bunch of bridges. They, they did, I'll give you some numbers in a second. Finally, they started getting better quality weapons and mines, and they started blowing up trains. One of the partisans in Israel said something to me that it was one of the joys of his life of blowing up a train, running to the woods, stopping, and hearing the sound effects. And I said, what do you mean sound effects? He goes, if there was a lot of fire, machine gun, rifle, you know, was a troop train, if you hear secondary explosion, it was a weapon train. And if there was big smoke flumes, it was a fuel train. And they knew that every time they derailed the train or they did something, they basically slowed down the German onslaught. This is one of the partisans of Vilna. His name is Burl Yohai. He's mining a train. That's what the Russians took pictures of it. That's what the train looked like when he was done. Now, I'm going to read you something, if I can read it in this light. Professor Dove Levine of Hebrew University in Israel is considered one of the one of the most utmost scholars on Lithuanian resistance, and he put this together: the results of the missions carried out by the 108 members of the Avengers. Let me repeat: there were a total of 300 partisans of Vilna. 108 were, were my parents' group, led by Ava Kovner. The members provide. This is information provided by Hebrew University Dove Levine, who again he's considered one of the scholars and historians. They, they blew up and destroyed 11 military plants, five bridges, three electronic transformers, two factories, one water tower. They blew up and destroyed seven locomotives and 33 railroad cars. They blew up and dismantled railroad tracks 350 times. They cut and destroyed communication lines, three, excuse me, 315 telephone and telegraph poles. And during ambushes, they killed 212 enemy soldiers. Now, they had, none of these partisans thought they were going to live. They thought, you know, it's a matter of time. They lost a third of them in battle. They were fighting for two reasons, for the honor of their family and the dignity of the Jewish people. That's why they fought. General Eisenhower made this quote about the partisans. He said, and he's talking about all the Jewish partisans fighting in Eastern Europe, the disruption of enemy rail transportation throughout Eastern Europe by the organized forces of the resistance played a considerable part in the Allied victory because I ask you, every time you derail a train, how many hours are you stopping trains going from east and west? And, you know, the Red Army is basically who liberated 
most of Eastern Europe. And if you can make things a little bit easier for the Red Army, you're basically making a difference. Now, it was time for the liberation of Vilna. The Red Army got a hold of the partisans of Vilna and said, we want you in on the, on the liberation of Vilna. What we're going to do is we're going to send in the heavy artillery and the tanks, the, art, uh, the heavy mechanized equipment, and we, the Germans refused to surrender. There were 8,000 Germans still left in Vilna, but we want you going in with the troops going in as soon as the mechanized people do their thing. And they wanted them in there for two reasons. One, they realized they were motivated because these guys made a difference, and two, they knew the city. So they knew ultimately it would be um, something good. Now, what happened, the battle lasted about 10 days. And the battle was over on the 14th of July, 1943. My mother had gotten word from a couple of escapees from a labor camp that her mother and her brother were still alive. And in this, uh, this was the labor camp right here. It's called HKP. So a number of the partisans raced over to HKP as soon as Vilna was liberated, and they found a stack of dead bodies. The Germans, on their way retreating from Vilna, killed all the Jews, did not leave anybody. My parents found my mother's mother and her brother. And imagine, you know, it's bad enough when somebody's taken away and shot and dumped into a pit, but you don't see it. And it may, it'll make you sick no matter what. But imagine what it does for you emotionally when, you, when my mother sees her mother's body and her brother's body lying with a stack of bodies. That, that was very difficult. Well, a lot of people wonder, why is it the, there are photos of the partisans of Vilna, but very few other partisans groups? Because there's a, a well-known Soviet journalist named Ilya Ehrenberg. And he wasn't a practice. He was born and raised Jewish, but not practicing Jewish. He was a writer for Pravda and Red Star, the two Jewish or the two Russian newspapers. And he was he found out about the partisans of Vilna. He was totally fascinated. And my dad happens to be that guy there with a cap, or that one right there. It's the same photo. He was totally fascinated with the partisans of Vilna and wanted he wanted the Russians to understand well. My father and mother, where are they going to go? Nobody wanted Jews. My mother had relatives and two uncles in the U.S. My, my father wanted to go to, to Palestine with a hope maybe someday the Jews will get their own country. And so my mother said, they cut a deal that she was going to write a, a postcard to the address she believed her uncle lived in. And if he would respond, then they would, they would go into the U.S. if he would take them in. If not, they'd go to Palestine. So this is the exact letter. I have the original. It will, and I might have to get it with larger print, but if I can do that. What it said on there is, the postcard was sent from Vilnius, Lithuania, on September 7th, 1944. And get this address. It was addressed to Bell Street 91, Springfield, America. There's only one problem. There's 13 Springfields. The postcard arrived in the Wright Springfield on May 26, 1945, about seven months later. And I'm going to read you this postcard, and it's very broken English, but I'm going to read it exactly as it was written. My dear uncle, I am to inform you that I, your sister, Rose's daughter, left one from the whole family. 
I was a Russian partisan and was saved by the glorious Red Army. My mom said she needed that to get through the screeners. Um, Please inform all the relatives about the sorrowful state. I look forward to your answer. My husband sends the best wishes, Zhenya Lewinson. Well, basically they needed to get out of Vilna because the Russians were going to conscript everybody to fight for the Red Army, and that wasn't their fight. They've they've already lost their fight. Their, Their families are gone. So what happened is as the Russians were liberating towns, they would go behind them, and they ended up in Lublin, Poland, which was right next to where my father's hometown is. So my father goes to his hometown with a couple of other members of the partisans who were from the same hometown. He wanted to see if there's any, res- any remnants of his family. So he goes, and my father, keep in mind, the partisans at that point were not lovable, easygoing people. They had become very battle-hardened, and they would do whatever it takes for whatever they need. So my father goes to his family's house, and he knocks on the door, and a, and a man answers the door. And my father says, who are you? And he says, who are you? And he goes, this is my family's house. And he goes, it's not your family's house, it's my house. And my father says, you have 24 hours to leave, or I'll take care of it. And my father, they, the Russians took away their rifles, but they had plenty of pistols. And, and these guys were going to do whatever they needed to do. So my father's walking out, and he runs into a priest who recognized him from growing up. And the priest says, what are you doing here? And he says, I came back to take my family's possessions and my, and, and, and my house. And he says, nobody is going to give you anything. You're just going to get killed. Hasn't there been enough Jews killed? And my father left, and he never went back. The, the members of his partisan group and other survivors then next went to Bucharest, Romania, where they were at war's end. And um, finally, they ended up in Rome, Italy. Now, they get to Rome, Italy, and my mom's kind of thinking, is this marriage legal? You know, my mom is in the details. You know, my father, you know, he's a guy. You know, well, it's legal, you know. Well, so what they do is they decide to go see somebody, uh, a, a rabbi in Rome. And they went to the rabbi. He was the chief rabbi of Rome. He explained what their situation was, or she explained and he wanted, he said, do you have any of the witnesses who were at the wedding? And two of them, ironically, were in Rome. So this is a document that he wrote, and I have the original. I have unbelievable amount of originals for this whole book. And the U.S. Holocaust Museum recently sent an archivist to our house. They flew her out from, Calif- from Washington to California to see all our documents because they like to permanently archive them at the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. So we were honored. But I'm going to read you this, and I have the original. And, I, and I'm gonna, this is in Italian. I'm going to read you the translation. It's from the Israel Community of Rome, official rabbi, certificate, Rome, January 3rd, 1946, Rosh Kodesh, 5706. We, the undersigned, declare of having been present at the marriage celebrated in the Vilna Ghetto on the day of Lagba Omer, 1943, between Mr. Eliezer Bart, my dad's name was Eliezer, Laser was his nickname, born in Khrubyeshov on June 15, 1915, and now a resident of Rome at Via de Serpente 171-13, and Mrs. Genia Lewinson, born in Vilna, on June 5th, 1922, and now a resident of Rhone at the same mentioned address. 
And then they had two of the witnesses who were at the wedding, who were in Rome, who attested to this. Then the rabbi said at the end, on the basis of the above testimony, the rabbinical office has validated the marriage between husband and wife mentioned above to the old tradition, which is still in effect today in the land of Israel. Stamped and sealed, the official rabbi of the Israeli consulate or the Israeli community of Rome. Finally, um, my parents, the, the uncles, con- contacted them in Italy, and it took two years to get through all the stuff. They lived in Italy for a little over two years, and they, they ended up coming to the U.S. in January of 1948. They came on an old U.S. troop ship called the Marine Perch. Now, I've never been able to figure out why, but I have their original tickets. The Joint Distribution Committee helped me with this. Somehow my mother got officer's class and my dad got steerage. I don't know. You know I, that's a question that I'll never know. Then the first day in the U, back in the U.S., or the first day in the U.S. for my mother and father, tell me my father didn't look scared, like, what the hell am I doing here? My mother kind of looked more, you know, easygoing. That's my mom's uncle, and that's cousins. This is an old famous restaurant in uh, New York called the Old Romanian Restaurant. Their first day in the U.S. at the Old Romanian Restaurant. Finally, everybody says to me, did you ever listen to the guy at the funeral? Did you listen to the guy at the funeral, and did you put something on their gravestone? Everybody asks me that, and I never tell them until now. That's their gravestone, and that what it says on there is Bart Nakama Freedom Fighters. And I, I put that on the back. That's exactly where the person, the gentleman went up to me and told me, you need to inscribe something on your parents' gravestone. That's what I inscribed. Now, my parents pledged two things to each other when they met. They pledged to love each other, and they pledged to fight the Nazis. And their commitment was until our last breath. This book, for me, is for the memory of all the Jews from Vilna, for all the freedom fighters, and for my parents. Thank you very much. Uh, now I'm open for any questions anybody might have. That's, to me, one of my most favorite parts because then I'm answering what you guys might want to know rather than what I'm telling you. Okay, I've got to make you happy. How do I go back? Hit escape, Bonnie? Well... This photo coming right here was drawn by a former partisan who lives in Israel to this day, and I believe he's still alive. His name is Alexander Bogan. He was a sketcher and artist. He drew this while out in the Rudnicki Forest as a member of the partisans. This is an original that he drew and he brought back with him and ultimately to Israel, and he's a revered artist in Israel to this this day. this is basically his vision of what the partisans look like. But that's, that's you know, sure. Anything else anybody has? When they were in Rome, my dad got a job working for the Joint Distribution Committee. And so they made enough money working for the joint, or he did, where they got an apartment right over by the Colosseum. I, I visited the apartment uh, a number of years ago. It's literally walking distance to the Colosseum. 
They loved the Italians. There was a family that didn't want them to leave. They were living in their building, and they literally wanted to adopt and sponsor my, my parents. My father you know, came from so much anti-Semitism in Europe, and all of a sudden, it's the first time somebody non-Jewish treated him well. And the Italians were, one, you know, they were just wonderful people. And, and my father developed, you know, they spoke fluent Italian. And my, my parents had so much respect for the Italians. So, and then they ultimately came. The family, whose name was Ferraro, was willing to give my family, my parents, money. They didn't want them to leave. They loved my parents. Any final questions? Absolutely. Um, my, when they started telling me more details, my mother would tell me the things that happened bad about my dad, and my dad would tell me the things that happened bad about my mom. They, could, they really didn't address it head on themselves. Um, and so my mother, I believe, was more willing to share stories than my father was. My father was very quiet. Now, uh, I'll tell you kind of a, uh, an interesting story. My mother was explaining when they met in the ghetto and they were having their courtship. And she was saying that she was very naive, never had a boyfriend, was 18 years old. She, she told me, quote, that she, had a, she thought that if she kissed a boy, she'd get pregnant. So she was very naive. My father was very shy. And so it's really hard for me to imagine somebody who's so naive and somebody who's so shy to develop a friendship, that developed a courtship, that developed a love affair. One of the Holocaust survivors, and I had 41 help me on this project in different parts, big pieces, little pieces, when I said, tell me what you know about my parents' experiences in Europe. And she says, Michael, there's only one thing you should know about your parents. Nothing else matters. Your parents were a love story. That's all you need to know. They were a love story. And that's something that... It's, you know, you hear something like that, and you say, I'll never forget. Is your mother alive? No. My mother died in 2003. Um, my father died in 1996. So. I'm also the daughter of Holocaust survivors. Well, your story is so similar to my parents. They were in the Lodge ghetto. Okay. Of course, not partisans, but they survived. I have a dear friend in San Diego whose mother lives, is a survivor in Baltimore who is in the Lodge ghetto. Lasser, Sylvia Lasser. It's my friend and her mom you know, lives in Baltimore anyway, but small world. Okay, well, that's really... Sure, for, for, no, for about a year. What happened is the Vilna Ghetto was liquidated on September 23, 1943, and they were partisans for almost a year before the, the Vilna was liberated by the Red Army together with the partisans. So they were there a year, but... You know, it, it was a year. They didn't think they were going to live. And so they think, when you don't think you're going to live, then you figure it's time to take care of final business. And so they, they did things not to survive. There were, you know, a lot of people who said, why didn't you just stay out in the woods and just wait your time for the Red Army to come? Because they figure somebody's going to kill them. You know, everybody was out there shooting at Jews. It was target practice out there. And so they thought, we're going to make a difference. And it turned out that a third of them died, but they really made a difference. And they, they basically made a difference because a lot, it just told people that there were Jews who didn't go like sheep to slaughter.
Oh, go ahead. No. That was a complicated mix out there because what happened is there were a lot of Lith- a lot of Lithuanians did not like the Russians because they didn't like communism. They blamed the Jews for communism because in the initial Communist Party, there were five out of the 14 original founding members, and so it's easy to blame the Jews. You know, Jews are easy to blame. So the Lithuanians say, well, you know, you Jews, you know, you're all communists. Well, they won't. And also the communism that we think of today is different than what these guys did because it's more like socialism where the, the difference between the people who live on a kibbutz in Israel, they went out there who were basically socialists, and the communists is the communists basically weren't practicing Judaism. But other than that, they, they weren't into, you know, dominating. They weren't into, you know, controlling people and, and, and rights. They basically believed in rights. Well, what happened is in the woods, it, there was a complicated mix because there were Lithuanians who were against the Russians, but the Lithuanian communists were for the Russians. So most of them during the invasion went into the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union then parachuted a lot of them back into there to fight as Russian partisans in the Rudnicki Forest. But then what it got really complicated is bands of Polish militia called the AK came in there, and they were very anti-Semitic, and they were trying to just kill Jews. Okay, so you had, you went through a similar experience. So my dad said to me, he goes, everybody was anti-Semitic. He goes, the Russian were the best of the bad, meaning they were all bad, but the Russians, you know, you just watched your back, um, but they wouldn't go right up to your, your face and tell you what they thought of you, where the Poles and the Lithuanians would. The Russians helped. The Russians helped. Okay. Well, I asked my father about that. I said, why didn't the Germans just go in there and bring in 20,000 troops and take care of everything? He goes, they couldn't because it was so heavily forested and they would absolutely not go in without armor because they were afraid to death of the partisans. But they armed the villagers. That was a problem for... Um, what he basically, he, this gentleman wa, was a partisan in the Naraj forest, which was an area very near Vilna. And he was basically sharing some of, he, he basically felt he was fighting the Polish militias that were out there and the Germans because the AK was the name of their group, were trying to kill the Jews. And he was saying that the Germans would go to his forest and clear out areas so they could, you know, get to the partisans. Or they were, but the Rudnicki forest where my parents were, were so, it was so large, they didn't have that option. And my dad said they frankly would never go in there because they figured that they were not that brave without tanks and heavy artillery. Along the railroad, they cleared the forest. The Rudnicki was too wide of an area.
Right. Right. Well, it's, it was a similar experience. And what, what the Jews had a problem with were the Germans were arming a lot of the local villagers. The villagers didn't like the Jews to begin with. They were anti-Semitic. The Jews were stealing their food. They got to live. And so the Germans were saying, well, we'll give you arms if you kill the Jews. So then the Jews had very, a lot of violent confrontations with the villagers who were being armed by the Germans. Near the cities? Right. Where you were. Right. So your forest was your forest is much smaller than Rudniki, and it's a whole different experience. But it's a similar concept. Yeah. It was. It, you could get lost. Yeah. Well, my parents only shared, my dad shared his partisan experience, as I said earlier, because he was proud of it. And my mom only talked about where she was born and raised from and her culture, and she was proud of that. You know, as a child of Holocaust survivors, you either feel or hear the Holocaust your entire life. If your parents talk about it, you hear it. If they don't talk about it, you feel it. And so many survivors didn't want to burden their children with the agony of what they had been through by sharing too much with them because they didn't, my father didn't want me to hate the whole world. And he said, you know, nobody, nobody helped the Jews. And it was, if the Jews didn't look out for Jews, nobody else did. And so, but he didn't want me to basically dislike people because of actions that would happen, you know, many, many years ago. He wanted me to judge people by what their actions are today. Absolutely. About how they adjusted to the life after. Sure. It was easier for my dad than my mom. Um, My mom, because she was so traumatized by seeing her mother and her brother stacked on a pile of bodies, that she she basically went into depression for a while. She was actually, you know, seeing doctors and temporarily for a week or so in a sanitarium. In uh, I was either Bucharest, no, it was in Rome, and so she could get, so she could heal, and you know they ultimately came up with a decision, and a doctor said to my mom that if you don't, if you don't, you know, try to heal, and recover from what you've done, then basically Hitler killed more Jews. If if it's like Hitler then finished you off, if he's fin- if if you can't function in a normal in normal situation, then basically Hitler basically killed more Jews. And my mom, I think she and my dad talked to me about that. She realized that this it was true, but she had a much more difficult emotional time than my father. My father dealt with things, you know, differently than my mom. Your mother? Oh, wow. My father was burned alive. But my father went out from that place when they put it in the fire and shot the policeman. My mother was burned. I don't know, it was 50 or 60 people that were there. Stories like that, 
you know, it would happen all the time. I mean, they, and, and I would think in your area where, who is collaborating with the, with the Germans? The Lithuanians and Estonians. Yeah, the Baltic countries, and they, they were doing it partly out of anti-Semitism, and again, partly they wanted to get away from the Soviet Union, and they thought that Germany gave them better opportunities. They did. They offered them, but in the end, the, the, they started becoming disillusioned because the German, they realized the Germans weren't giving them what they were promising them. But there were the, the most Jews that were killed in Europe were killed in countries that, that the people were the more anti-Semitic or collaborating. You look at the statistics, the statistics show if you, the more collaborating or anti-Semitic, there was a joke amongst Lithuanians that the Germans will give you 10 kilos of sugar if you turn in a Jew. And the Lithuanians go, we don't need 10, we'll take five. That says it all. Any final questions? Well, thank you very, very much for listening to this, and thank you very, very much.